You know, Bitcoin is apolitical. We ascribe our own belief structures onto it. And so, you know, in the early days, there was a lot of libertarians, uh, you know, came at it for the monetary policy. But, you know, I, I looked at the programming side and what I saw was essentially, you know, uh, communism, <laughs> um, you know, the open source software. There, there's no one getting paid for it. You know, each person to their own. You know, everybody contributes to this shared project altruistically. You know, whereas the monetary policy might be, you know, more libertarian focused, the development of it is rather uh, progressive. So somehow Satoshi Nakamoto managed to combine these two diametrically opposed ideologies into a single single project. And, you know, again, redistribution of wealth. That's right out of Occupy Wall Street. I wish Elizabeth Warren could see the, you know, the mass redistribution event. You know, it's the first asset in human history where corporations and the powerful didn't have access to it first. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Nathaniel Harmon. Nathaniel received his master's in marine geology and geochemistry from the University of Hawaii and has since been involved in improving the energy infrastructure in a sustainable manner for the Hawaiian Islands. In 2020, Nathaniel and his wife, Kristen Harmon, founded the Hawaiian Islands Conservation Collective in an effort to harness locally educated scientists to restore native ecosystems. Nathaniel has been involved with Bitcoin since 2013, and his most recent venture, OceanBit Energy, is focused on bringing the unique properties of Bitcoin mining to make ocean thermal energy conversion, or OTEC, a more viable and sustainable energy solution, not only for the Hawaiian Islands, but the more than billion people who live around the equator. All I'll say is that this was an incredibly fascinating conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much for tuning in. All right. Well, Nathaniel Harmon, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. So while you've been into Bitcoin since 2013, uh, you're relatively new to Bitcoin Twitter and the podcast world. So please tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, so I have a master's degree in marine geochemistry uh, and uh, ge- geology and geochemistry. Um, so I'm an ocean chemist. I've been out here in Hawaii for about 10 years. I was a scuba instructor at one point in my life many, many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, I've just loved the ocean ever since I was a small child. Who, who doesn't love the ocean, right? What are you working on now? Uh, I've got a couple of projects. Um, I have Blockchain Solutions Hawaii, which is like a consulting firm for local companies, you know, integration, stuff like that. And then I'm uh, working on an energy project. So using ocean thermal energy conversion um, and trying to bring that to you know, as many people as possible. And we will certainly get to that. But first, when you learned about Bitcoin back in 2013, I believe, how did it fit into your political views and value systems at that time? At that time, you know, 2013, I really wasn't thinking about it um, so much. Uh, you know, I was a 
I remember during the Bush years, you know, protesting the war um, in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta at the time uh, during the Bush years and protesting there. Uh, I remember Occupy Wall Street being a big fan. And honestly, in 2013, I was just looking for a way to buy weed on the Internet. Um, <laughs> and it was so small at the time. I didn't, you know, it, it never really. Uh, yeah, it, it took a few years before I really started to consider the the implications of, you know, Bitcoin uh, for the general population. So it, it wasn't really until 2016 um, that I got, uh, you know, political about it. Um, during the 2015 run up to the presidential election, I had discovered uh, Bernie Sanders um, very early on. I remember his one, the one talk he gave when he announced that nobody covered. I remember listening to that and thinking, yeah, okay, let's go. So I went out and I started the uh, Students for Sanders on uh, UH campus, which ended up evolving into the, um, you know, the statewide campaign for Bernie. And uh, that was when I started to kind of connect the dots between Bitcoin and, you know, a lot of my progressive beliefs. Um, I mean, having come out of the, you know, Occupy Wall Street, um, I realized that the, it's a lot of the problems in the world are attributable to, you know, banking. And, you know, I looked at Bitcoin as sort of a redistribution event, a global redistribution event, sort of in line with uh, some of the writings of Thomas Piketty. Um, you know, he talked about there's two real good ways to redistribute capital from, you know, once it starts getting, once capital starts, you know, getting piled up at the top, you know, they have uh, the interest rates that they can get from paying all the best, you know, MBAs in the world and quants. They can get uh, this increased rate of return that, you know, without a progressive tax rate, uh, it just sort of starts piling up. And there's two really good ways to redistribute it. Um, you can do it through war, uh, obviously. You know, World War One, World War Two destroyed all the legacy capital of Europe. And, you know, that's, you know, the rebuilding of it led to the redistribution of that wealth. Uh, and then you can also have an industrial revolution, which at the time I was kind of into the Jeremy Rifkin stuff, uh, you know, the third industrial revolution. And I was looking at, you know, Bitcoin as the peaceful alternative to, you know, the, the war redistribution route. And, you know, the ability to freely move and, you know, how dictators would essentially take their entire country hostage via monetary policy and the ability for, you know, people to escape that. That really caught my eye. And at the time, it wasn't really a controversial opinion because um, Bitcoin was so small in 2016. And then later, I saw a sort of shift. And uh, where, you know, the people who I was talking to, where we would have nice conversations about it, sort of shifted towards negative opinions and assuming that I'm some sort of libertarian, anarcho-capitalist or whatever. Were you able to pinpoint what changed for them? Why they started to think differently about your association with it? I mean, it all started with a lot of the environmental stuff. 
Um, you know, I think when, when did the New York Times article come out and when did Alex DeVries start publishing that uh, the, the Bitcoin, you know, is destroying the environment web page? Uh, I think that was around that same time. I remember that was that was when the conversation went from, oh, it's just from it's just for, you know, uh, nerds on the Internet to, oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to destroy the environment. Um, yeah, I think that was about the same time. So after after the Sanders campaign is when I really saw the shift. There was obviously some who would still listen, but it was it was, uh, you know, different. One of the reasons we're chatting today is your association with a paper on Bitcoin that has made its rounds as the paper to cite when expressing concern about Bitcoin's energy use. That's been mentioned in during congressional hearings, the ECB and numerous media outlets. And of course, I'm referring to the more at all paper. Can you walk us through how that paper came to be and what's problematic with it? Sure. So, uh, you know, Camilo Mora is a rock star scientist at UH. Um, he's got dozens of publications in all the best journals, uh, and he, he really does good work. Um, one of the classes he teaches at UH as uh, an undergrad, 300 level. So it's mostly STEM students and REM, the department my wife came out of, geology, uh, oceanography students. Um, global environmental science. And uh, one of the, you know, the, the point of this class that he was teaching is to, for undergrads to, you know, pick a topic, learn about that topic, and then walk through the publishing process. Well, at, uh, for, you know, this particular class, the topic was Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I had, uh, at the time I was, uh, there's a, this, Friday night Pauhana event where, you know, all the graduate students and undergrads who are over 21 get together, we drink beer, uh, and, you know, talk story. Um, and of course I ran that at one point and attended it for the entirety of my time at UH, uh, both undergrad and grad. And one of, um, as anybody who learns about Bitcoin talks about it, so it was a frequent com- topic of conversation. Um, and uh, one of the uh, w- one of my close friends who was a TA of mine as an undergrad and a colleague of mine in the SOAS school uh, was Katie Talladay. Uh, she is a you know, wonderful scientist as well and a, you know, a friend. She was the TA for this class with Camilo. And you know, the idea, uh, you know, was proposed by the TAs at the time to do, to spend the whole semester learning about Bitcoin. And, you know, I was the really the only one at the time talking about Bitcoin uh, from sort of an academic standpoint uh, around campus. Um, you know, most people would just essentially write me off and either walk away from the conversation as soon as it turns to, turns out everything is related back to money. And so you can relate every, every topic of conversation back to, you know, Bitcoin in some, in some twisted way. Um, but she was one of the only people who would actually engage. So we would, you know, as, as other people would leave the conversation, we would sit there for hours and talk about Bitcoin. Um, you know, her brother got into Bitcoin after me talking to her for so long. And, you know, I think one day she we used to live in the same neighborhood and we ran into and she, she comes up and says, 
my brother's doing very well. Thanks to, <laughs> thanks to you. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but, uh, it sounds like a pretty coincidental thing, right. Uh, that they just decided to talk about Bitcoin and then the paper comes out and it's, you know, oh, Bitcoin's going to push us, uh, over the edge, right. It was after the, you know, DeVries, so when you Google Bitcoin, you know, the New York Times ran the piece. So you Google Bitcoin and first thing that comes up, well, it's not going to be any of the, you know, monetary policy or anything like that. It's the environmental problems with Bitcoin was the first thing. So it makes sense why they would write it. Um, and it's an environmental science class. So looking at that side, uh, yeah, it just makes sense for them. What are the problems then that have... Uh come about with regard to the paper what what does it get wrong yeah so the you know the title of the paper is uh bitcoin emissions alone could put us over the two degrees c or something something like that um and they assume that you know bitcoin becomes the the medium of transaction uh you know the medium of exchange for all electronic uh payments you know, then they use visa level transactions and they say, OK, well, if Bitcoin uses this amount of energy today to do you know, 10 transactions per second, what happens if we scale that to visa level? You know, and they do this linear, um, you know, this linear model where you know, transactions scale linearly with energy use. And we know that's not true, but you can't really expect an undergraduate class to understand that in a semester. And so they get this outrageous amount of energy use and they looked at where the major mining op, uh, the countries where the major mining operations were happening and used the, you know, the energy uh, makeup of the whole country to make this, you know, to make this estimate, right? So, you know, while, you know, China uses mostly coal to power their country, they didn't take, you know, the regional scale. It's about the, um, the scale of where you're looking. You know, you really have to break it down by mining operation. You can't look at the whole country. You know, what Texas uses to mine Bitcoin and what, you know, uh, Inner Mongolia uses or, you know, two vastly different things. You know, even though the U.S. is mostly powered by oil, a lot of the Texas stuff is powered by solar, right? So you even have to you, know, you need a much more granular uh, look at it. And it was the work of undergrads. So, you know, it wasn't meant to be taken seriously, but it sort of has. In light of that, in light of the mistakes that were made in the calculations, should Mora consider retracting the paper? Uh, retracting is, uh, is kind of a big deal for an author in general, um, especially for some of the, uh, you know, I think Randy Rollins is the second author on there. She's a good friend of my wife and her, you know, we know her daughter uh, and her husband and she's still a PhD student. And I think, I think a better, uh, I guess it would be a retraction, but to edit it and just say, well, you know, because the problem is that not not necessarily the uh, the math that they use, not necessarily the model. It's that they're describing a network that isn't Bitcoin at that point. And you know, just up an, an update to it uh, would be. 
probably a better option, you know, saying that this isn't Bitcoin. I mean, he's been out. Uh, Camilo came out. Um, he did a NPR interview and admitted that it was written by, you know, undergraduates as well. But yeah, it's re- retraction is difficult. Um, and so there's all these competing interests involved. But yeah, it's a two page note. It's not, it doesn't really warrant a, re- a retraction because it's a two page note. It's not an actual, you know, paper uh, in the same way as, you know, a thesis or, you know, any of his other papers. It's a, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like, oh, here's some hand wavy math, you know. Uh, it, it's just not meant to be taken seriously. Absolutely. You and I both know that, but it's obviously had this outsized effect. Yeah. So it would be nice to have some type of perhaps outsized uh, follow-up for it. But at this same time, you were, I believe, floating an idea, uh, I suspect a preliminary idea to your, your current company, where you were trying to discuss uh, Bitcoin and its uh, energy integration. So you were talking to your colleagues and professors about this idea. But from what I understand, they repeatedly dismissed you and at, t- at times even insulted you because of your your interest in, in Bitcoin. And so I'm, I'm really kind of curious to know how how did you handle that at the time? And why did you not quit, throw your, uh, the towel in and say to, to hell with Bitcoin? You know, it was uh, at, at the time I was deep into oceanography. I was a graduate student and, you know, energy topics uh, are a frequent, you know, topic of conversation, just talking about energy. And, you know, I would talk to some of my, you know, more grizzled professors and, you know, they were quite pessimistic about our ability as, as a society to make the changes necessary to avoid, you know, catastrophe. And I always thought, you know, as a as a young, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed uh, graduate student, you know, I was always like, oh, yeah, solar and wind can really change the world. You know, why don't we just go all solar and you do some back of the hand math and say, OK, you know, have one kilowatt per meter squared. We could, you know, we could run the whole world on a solar a solar farm in the Sahara, you know, crazy, crazy projects like that, you know. And then I started, you know, as you get, as you, as you take more classes, you learn more, you realize the intricacies of the grid and how difficult that is. So I started looking at, uh, you know, like how to act, how, how would we actually go about solving it? And uh, essentially, it would take a industrial revolution, a complete mobilization of the global, um, you know, workforce, manpower to, to making this change. I mean, upending the entire energy grid uh, would be just uh, it's a gargantuan task. And so, you know, yeah, I would look at what are the incentives? So, you know, I had uh, teachers um, you know, professors around me that would study carbon credits, you know, carbon dividends, um, you know, they'd come to class, they'd do guest lectures or have lectures on campus about, you know, all these solutions. And they all just kind of fell short because they all rely on jurisdictional, uh, you know, power. You know, the, the U.S. can influence things in the U.S., but not everywhere. And it's not necessarily that the U.S., you know, we use a lot of energy, granted, and we've been the problem for 100, 100 plus years now. But how can we 
industrialize the developing world without carbon. And none of their solutions address that. And this was, you know, Bitcoin has this, uh, you know, the energy part. And, you know, it's the proof of work. People talk about, oh, blockchain technology is this, is the magic, you know. No, it's the proof of work. And at the core of Bitcoin is it's an energy technology. And, you know, so I I looked at, you know, I started by, I started reading C++ books to read the, um, you know, to read the core, the core repository, uh, you know, Bitcoin core. And, you know, it started to come together that, hey, as the, you know, with, with each happening, the reward gets less and less and the competition gets steeper and steeper. And eventually, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a frog in a boiling pot of water. Eventually you're going to, you know, you're going to either jump, you're going to have to jump out if you have too much. Like right now, uh, the S9s are having to turn off because they're reaching their, you know, their profitability cutoff. Um, and so the higher the cost of energy, the less you'll be able to mine, the less profitable it is. So as time goes on, the energy sources that will survive are those uh, that have the lowest marginal cost. And, you know, by definition, having to extract that oil in one location, transport it to a processing facility, then transport it again to the end user, this all has you know, OPEX, it's all, it's OPEX heavy. Oil has always been operational expense heavy. Whereas, you know, renewables that haven't really enjoyed that same hundred year, you know, development that brought the CapEx of, you know, a coal power plant, you know, you can buy coal power plants right off the line. They're relatively cheap as far as CapEx. Uh, you know, your major ongoing cost is going to be that oil. That renewables, while they have a high CapEx, they have this extremely low operational expense where, you know, and the result of that is the curtailment problem where you're generating too much energy while the wind is blowing and the sun is shining and you end up just having to turn your windmill off or turn your, uh, you know, PV panel off. Um, and so I realized that, hey, Bitcoin provides this, and I hate to say this as a progressive, this private sector incentive to build out the renewable energy you know, technology worldwide, you know, in the beginning, same sort of incentive that was there uh, for fossil fuels, you know, at the turn of the century, there is this massive profit motive to build out fossil fuels 100, 150 years ago. Uh, you know, there was government subsidies as well, but there was this profit motive where if you built that infrastructure, you would, you know, they gave you a utility, uh, which is essentially a state-sponsored monopoly forever. And that Bitcoin provided that incentive for the world. And so I would shop this around. I wrote, I think it was 14 or 17 page paper or something and shop it around to professors in the departments, um, you know, environmental scientists, economists, and you know, some of the ones who would actually engage with me, love they, they would love the idea. And I tried to avoid Bitcoin as much as possible. But eventually they go, what is this magic technology that turns renewable energy into money? And I go, well, it's, it's Bitcoin. And, you know, um, some were not happy. Uh, some, call, you know, I got called a scammer by Dr. Michael Roberts. I was told to drop out and go work for the Winklevoss twins, which I guess probably would have been a good idea, 
being employee number, you know, low number over at Gemini would have been a, a good career decision. Um, uh, yeah. Then even one of my wife's uh, advisors, PhD advisors just wrote it off. There were, there were some like my PI, Dr. Um, Christopher Sabine, who actually gave me reviews uh, on the paper. Um, but after all the negative feedback, it was kind of demoralizing. Sure. And I, um, I don't know, it's once you read the core repository and understand it, you know, you get discouraged, you get, you know, beat down a little, but, uh, there's, it's a brain bug. It's there forever. You you can't really, can't really leave it. The core repository kept you motivated. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, I asked you about your, your, uh, how you handled, uh, being uh, discouraged and insulted by your, your mentors. And you basically just took care of the rest of the podcast, but, um, We'll, we'll, we'll continue on. So um, to that point, you kind of alluded to this, but what are environmentalists who dismiss Bitcoin? What are they missing? A lot of environmental scientists also don't understand the grid, right? Because the grid, the energy infrastructure, energy grid is a, you know, an economic sort of, it's business, right? Um, and so they look at it like, all energy use is bad. Um, you know, the, the push is for, you know, cutting down your electricity, increasing efficiency of energy use, you know, like because they're, they're looking at it like fossil fuels, right? Where every bit of energy must be coming from fossil fuels. And so the less energy you use, the more efficient you are with your devices, the uh you know the the better that is for the environment and they you know they look at it like oh if i generate a you know a watt over here in hawaii that um you know you can just magically transport that watt to the mainland and it's fungible they think energy is fungible is one of the big assumptions that they make and the major problem is that all energy use must be bad. All anything that they don't consider as productive is bad. But they don't understand the incentives and how infrastructure gets built. Uh, you know, opex and capex are not not things environmentalists talk about very often. You know, how do you build? You know, you ask a lot of people just oh, solar and wind, and they they don't understand the incentives that the marginal cost of energy. The, the societal changes that need to happen for renewable energy to really proliferate, they don't really understand the business side of the grid. Let alone how those proposed solutions would be applied to non-Western countries and continents. Like right. You can't expect the, the same solutions to be applied to uh, the global South. I'm curious to get your, your thoughts. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of Bitcoin history is in 2009 when Hal Finney tweets thinking about how to reduce CO2 emissions from a widespread Bitcoin implementation. You ever thought about what he was thinking? You know, I, I had never seen that tweet until you brought it up. Yeah, 2009, I think it was January, is one of his second or third tweets. Really? That yeah. That's an, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, just the happening itself, you know, that's how you reduce the emissions. Um, you know, curtailment essentially has a negative uh, marginal cost. It actually costs money to turn the windmill off in the middle of the day. And so, you know, if if you can guarantee, you know, you have all the, when you're building a new wind farm, you have to do all these calculations for, uh, you know, curtailment rate. 
Uh, and it's going to be site specific. So, you know, you can't, it's hard to generalize this curtailment rate across, a, you know, a region. Um, so, you know, when you're running the numbers on whether to build a new wind farm or solar farm, you have to, you know, calculate your capacity value. Um, and for Hawaii, Oahu specifically, um, the capacity value of centralized PV is around 6%, and the capacity value of uh, wind is around 16%. So that what that means is that in order to meet 100 megawatts of load on the grid, you know, for centralized solar, you need 16x. You know, so you need you would need 1.6 gigawatts of solar plus battery um, to meet that you know, 100 megawatts of load. Uh, and this is the difference between intermittent energy and base load. Uh, you know, intermittent energy is only useful when it's uh, happening and you have to find some way to shift that demand. And most people think batteries, um, but the problem is that there's not quite enough lithium in the world to uh, support that kind of battery infrastructure. And yeah, I mean, I, I would be surprised if Satoshi himself didn't think of this as a, you know, a renewable energy technology. I mean, he must have been thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure he had similar thoughts uh, to what you expressed previously and in, in perhaps uh, what your, your company is trying to do. So let's talk about that. First, walk us through ocean thermal energy conversion. What is it? What is OTEC? So ocean thermal energy conversion is a... Uh, 150-year-old technology. Um, it was actually theorized at the same time that the first hydroelectric dams were being produced. So in the, you know, the 1870s, um, 1880s, and it's a heat engine. So you know they were looking at at the time, uh, the you know oil wasn't uh, necessarily going to be the winner at the time, and so everybody was looking at where you can find, you know, energy. And um, they propose using this difference in temperature between the surface ocean and the deep ocean. So, you know, in the tropics where the sun is shining on the ocean, you know, it heats up the water. And due to the, you know, thermodynamic properties of water, that heat uh, lasts all night. And the way that the thermohaline circulation works is that hot water is moved uh, north. You know, you uh, if you're on the East Coast, you know this as the Gulf Stream. It, when it gets to the poles where it's very cold, you get ice formation, sea ice formation, and uh, that leaves behind extra salty, super cold water, which is very dense because density is a function of temperature and salinity. And so that water sinks down to the bottom of the ocean where it circulates around until eventually being upwelled. So, you know, at the at the tropics, you have this nice warm water. And then down below, you have uh, very, very cold water. And with any temperature dif differential, there's, you know, the, the opportunity to generate energy. And yeah, it's... Uh, I think the first plant was built in the 1930s. Then they figured out that they need to hurricane proof it when a hurricane destroyed it. Uh, and then they found oil and there was no real political will to rebuild it because now they had this cheap, you know, Middle Eastern oil that was super abundant. 
And so it dropped off, you know, as a uh, endeavor. There have been, a, I think, 14 or so plants built over the last, you know, since then, um, all testing stuff. And yeah, it's, it works based on this temperature differential. And what you do is you, you run a heat, a heat engine. Uh, it's called a Rankine cycle. And you take, uh, you have this working fluid. So in our case, we use ammonia. And the warm water uh, can evaporate that ammonia. Uh, and then there's a low pressure turbine that you can use that evaporated ammonia to spin. Then you condense it with that cold water. Uh, and this is in a closed loop, so that ammonia doesn't, you know, leak out. But um, yeah, and you just run it in a closed cycle loop over and over again, just uh, condensing it and evaporating it and turning a turbine using the temperature difference. And so, why have these not been feasible as a source of uh, electricity for, in this case, Hawaii? Uh, so it's actually OTEC has been in the. Um, our renewable uh, portfolio plan for a long time, but the problem has always been an economy of scale. Um, it's been an economies of scale problem. Once you get to scale, you've got this cheap energy source that's available, um, but we're talking about you know 100 megawatt size, and at that point, there's you know you have uh, about a 35 foot pipe dropping down a thousand meters into the ocean, uh, you know, 35 meter or 35 foot diameter pipe that drops down, you know, 4,000 feet into the ocean. And there's a lot of engineering challenges involved with that. Um, and so you could go straight to hundred megawatt OTEC with the giant pipe, but you're going to have to figure out these environmental challenges kind of on the fly. So, you know, there's risk involved. So, you know, that makes um, investment into a new technology kind of, uh, you know, more risky. So, like with most technologies, you build a smaller version. So there have been a number of tests at the, you know, 100 kilowatt scale. Where there's a 100 kilowatt plant on the big island of Hawaii. But, you know, those are test, testing scales. You need to build something at scale uh, like a prototype scale, something between five and 20 megawatts. Um, you know, the pipe is manageable size uh, rather than, you know, you have to build this bespoke pipe. You can order these pipes right off the assembly line. Um, they're, you know, commercially available. And the problem is that it's the economy of scale. At that, you know, five to 20 megawatt, you're talking about, you know, 100, 200 million dollar investment in something that, is going to provide energy at too high of a cost for anybody to, you know, to pay. Here in Hawaii, we pay around, you know, 30 plus cents per kilowatt hour um, already, which is much higher than anywhere else in the country. If I, you know, try to tell people, oh, I've got this great renewable energy uh, that, you know, once we build it at this scale, you'll get cheaper energy. But at this scale, you're going to be paying 50 cents to a dollar for it. There's no buyer for that. Nowhere in the world can afford that, uh, you know, cost of energy. So, you know, essentially it would be a complete financial loss. And that's really been what's keeping it. So, you know, our, uh, we partnered with Mackay Ocean Engineering, who built the 100 kilowatt plant on the Big Island. And they've been doing this for 40 years. And they've had to pivot into the kind of the peripheral industry. So your seawater AC, 
So using the cold water supply, not to generate energy, but um, to, to cool buildings down, um, they can use the water for nutrients, uh, to produce spirulina, and they do heat exchange work. But OTEC is just, you know, as an energy generation, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. There's been a number of, you know, hurricane destroyed the one, the first one, and then a hurricane destroyed the second one. And then, so then they decided let's hurricane proof these things. So it got more expensive to build. Um, yeah, it's just the economies of scale have been preventing it uh, for so long. So how is OceanBit Energy trying to solve the economy of scale problem? So we are integrating Bitcoin into this. It turns out that by optimizing OTEC for Bitcoin production, you can drastically cut the capex of uh, you know one of these prototype scales. And by optimizing uh, Bitcoin for OTEC, you can drastically increase the efficiency of Bitcoin production. So, you know, um, this 100 mega, let, let's take a 100 megawatt example. Uh, you don't want this on land because you have this giant pipe that now you have to run out to, you know, thousand meter deep water. And one of the major expenses is your, is your giant seawater pipe. In order to cut those costs, the uh, shortest distance between two points is a straight one. So, you know, you want to drop it straight down. And so what you do is you have, instead of having a land-based OTEC plant, you have a plant ship offshore about 10 kilometers from Hawaii. You have access to you know, super deep water. Um, so you can save uh, quite a bit of um, CapEx there. But if you're connecting it to land, you have this long high-voltage cable. And that, again, you're talking about 40 to $100 million for that. Um, but if nobody's going to buy that energy at the 10 megawatt scale, well, you don't really need it. Uh, so you can cut CapEx there. Uh, if you don't have uh, that tether to land because nobody's going to buy that energy anyway, you don't really need a mooring. And without that mooring, you know, here in Hawaii, it's even though it's, you know, warm compared to uh, Minnesota, yeah. Um, <laughs> the water in Minnesota is much colder, uh, but even here, it's not ideal. We're sort of at the upper bounds of the tropics. I'm at, I think we're at 21 degrees North. Um, and you know, the way, uh, the OTEC cycle works is it's that Delta T, the change in temperature between the warm and the cold and, uh, the efficiency of the energy scales with the square of that Delta T. So, if we're not tethered to Hawaii, there's no need to be in Hawaii, so we can go find the highest delta T in the ocean. And that improves the efficiency of this by almost a factor of 2x. Um, so, you know, essentially we can, with the, the capex of a five megawatt plant, we can generate 10 megawatts of energy. Um, so that's a huge, you know, improvement uh, in the capex. And then once you're in the middle of the ocean, turns out at the equator, there's no hurricanes. Uh, so you don't have the reoccurring problem of these OTEC plants that are, you know, on small island nations getting, you know, brutalized by hurricanes. So you can uh, cut that hurricane proofing. You get the increase uh, in the energy efficiency. And this is, it's called grazing. 
And it's not actually a new idea. Uh, it's been proposed before, but again, there was no buyer of energy in the middle of the ocean. And so, you know, my, uh, my background in oceanography and Bitcoin, uh, I sort of put them together saying, hey, you know, a Bitcoin mine doesn't have lots of bandwidth. Uh, and I've been to sea and I can stream YouTube videos. And if you can stream YouTube videos, you can mine Bitcoin. Why not use Bitcoin as a buyer of last resort in the middle of the ocean? And then what you can do is to push the efficiency of those miners. You know, one of the waste products of the OTEC cycle is cold water, unlimited amounts of, uh, you know, near freezing water. Uh, and, well, one of the major expenses of mining Bitcoin is cooling those machines. So, you know, you have to power them and you have to cool them. So integrating that cold water supply into cooling these machines essentially reduces the power use efficiency of a data of a Bitcoin data center to around one. So you have 100% of your energy use uh, going straight to mining Bitcoin, and then you can cool these machines far deeper than anyone else. Um, so you're able to you know squeeze more hash rate out of each machine with no added. Uh, no added cooling costs. Uh, and we think we can, at least what we're seeing, we think we can reach break even on a 10 megawatt uh, plant in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and so then at what point do you, have you proved out the idea and then in, in turn can be applied to uh, connecting it to the mainland? Yeah, so once we run that to the, the 10 megawatt plant, um, that that'll prove it out, you know, because of that economy of scale, there's been no testing done at, you know, at large scale OTEC implementation and doing it at the equator means you're going to solve a lot of those problems with the cold water pipe. You know, you have to get this thousand meter, you know, one kilometer long pipe out into the ocean, and then you have to connect it to the bottom of your ship and there's gimbling involved. So a lot of those problems you know, that are associated with the 100 megawatt are solved at this prototype scale in this environment that isn't, you know, as rough. Uh, you're not, you don't have to worry about the hurricane coming and something going wrong with the pipe. So you, you solve a lot of those problems at the 10 megawatt scale. And then you can do, um, you know, research onto the impact of, you know, while, even though, you know, OTEC is a renewable energy source, Building anything has an impact, right? Anything you dam, you dam the river, and for hydroelectric, you're changing the way that the river flows. So there's environmental impact there. You know, geothermal, you have land use changes. You know, solar, wind, you're having to bulldoze whatever's in the way. So there's all these land use changes. There's the, you know, it's different because it's in the ocean, but you're changing. There's potential to change the sort of trophic structure anytime you have. Uh, a big thing in the ocean, it attracts a lot of the apex predators. Um, so you get, you know, lots of tuna, swordfish, sharks, stuff like that. Uh, and the, the water has, you know, lots of nutrients. So you're sort of seeding primary production. It's called artificial upwelling. And a lot of those effects haven't been studied uh, just because nobody's been able to build OTEC at scale. So you kind of, you know, solve a lot of these problems at the 10 megawatt scale, the engineering challenges, some of the environmental questions, 
And at that point, if you run it for, you know, a year, two years, it's off to the races. And so where can this technology be applied? And are there specific countries along the equator that you've uh, actually considered uh, rolling this out to uh, outside of Hawaii? Yeah, there's uh, over 100 uh, countries slash jurisdictions uh, that OTEC is ap- applicable to. You know, you, the, the two conditions are you need to be within the tropics, so 23 to 23, uh, 23 north to 23 south. And you have to have, uh, you know, deep, cold water available within your economic exclusion zone. So that's 200 kilometers from the coast. You know, obviously you have to be near the water. (laughs) You can't do this in the middle of, uh, you know, the continent. But um, yeah, there's there's over 100 jurisdictions and that covers around a billion people. And uh, it's really, you know, they're only, you know, for a lot of island nations, you know, solar doesn't cut it. It's not a base load. Um, they have limited land resources anyway. And uh, OTEC is the only, you know, renewable energy source that can power these places. You know, places like the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, you know, Nigeria and at the coast. Um, yeah. So assuming that these same countries would have to use more carbon intensive uh, sources for their uh, energy. Have there been estimates as to how OTEC might be able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, actually, me and my wife were uh, playing around with uh, ArcGIS uh, the other day, and um, we we did a you know a, a map, uh, real rough, real rough map of all you know. There's there's great data on all the known power plants in the world and. So, you know, we took the countries uh, where we know, you know, some of the, the country that those hundred countries aren't included in the um, power plant database, but we found all the countries where the locations work out. And there's, I think it's 1,041 carbon-based plants. So, you know, oil, coal, natural gas, combined cycle, where, uh, you know, Theoretically, OTEC could replace, and that ends up being around 300 gigawatts of uh, base load that theoretically uh, OTEC could replace in one capacity or another. You know, some of those locations aren't ideal for a direct hookup to land because the further out that uh, that deep water is, the you know the cost of the cable scales with the length. But what you could do is you could have offshore hydrogen, you know, green hydrogen production. Uh, and then just transport the hydrogen onshore. That is incredibly interesting. But what I'm most uh, actually concerned about is that this was a date night activity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, so you've spoken at a few uh, events in Hawaii about your idea. And what has been the reception? Uh, really, really positive. Yeah, I spoke at uh, the... I do some work with the uh, the Department of Financial Institutions through their Digital Currency Innovation Lab. Uh, I gave a talk there about the, um, I think it's called Hawaii Energy and Bitcoin or Bitcoin Energy in Hawaii. And, you know, I go through what it would look like to replace just a single one of our fossil fuel-based plants with solar and with wind. And the answer is you can't. 
if you wanted to replace the one plant that's 600 megawatts with an offshore wind farm, you would need an offshore wind farm the size of the island of Oahu itself. And that would be just absolutely environmentally devastating to the uh, deep sea community here. And that, you know, OTEC is the even, you know, even waves, waves are um, intermittent source as well. And even with 100% siting of all of Oahu's shoreline, you still only get 12% of our actual needs on Oahu. And OTEC is the only renewable energy source that can power Oahu. And if, you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar, Oahu is where Honolulu is. Uh, it's the main population center of the state. Uh, there's you know, about a million people living on the island of Oahu alone and around 400,000 in the rest of the uh, across the rest of the island. So it sounds like it's been well received. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, you know, I worked with uh, there's a couple of companies. Um, I think uh, Ocean It is uh, one of the big tech companies on island and they hosted the talk and uh, I worked with uh, Mackay Ocean Engineering on some of the, you know, the cost estimates for OTEC and modeling. And, you know, we, I call up these guys, you know, they're, they're, they built the plant on the big island um, in 2015. I've been doing it for 40 years. I call them up like, hey, you know, I'm doing this thing. And so I'm talking with the lead OTEC engineer and we just keep going back and forth, you know, shaving CapEx, increasing the efficiency. And the numbers keep coming back, you know, better and better. Uh, and so eventually, you know, I formed Ocean Bit <laughs> Energy, um, kind of a play on words with Ocean It. Uh, and we, you know, Mackay uh, is on board. You know, they're they're working with us now. They're our, uh, you know, engineering partners on this um, to make it happen. Our phase one is we're restarting the 100 kilowatt uh, OTEC plant on the Big Island. We want to make sure that, you know, that the the assumption that OTEC and Bitcoin production, you know, reduces that PUE to zero, find out exactly how much we can push the mining efficiency to, you know, and then from there, we're going to build out uh, containerized versions of OTEC. So it would be the first, I guess, commercial OTEC product ever. We want to build out 250 kilowatt container. Uh, you know, half of that container is OTEC and half of the container is Bitcoin mining. Uh, so, you know, a container that has the energy, the cooling and the Bitcoin all within the unit. Uh, so it's, you know, modular. It would be, you know, a first of its kind. And then from there, we want to scale that out to the, the 10 megawatt size. Just incredible. Such a fascinating idea. But we cannot end without talking about manganese balls. <laughs> yes, manganese nodules. Yes. Um, what are they? So in the middle of the ocean, there you, you have this desert. Essentially, there's no nutrients in the ocean because they've all been used up uh, for primary production. And in the middle of the ocean, there's nothing above. So nothing rains down. And the seafloor is usually made up of whatever is raining down from above. So if you're at the mouth of a riverbed, you get a lot of terrigenous material. Uh, if there's a lot of primary production, you get, you know, tiny little shells, you get, you know, all sorts of stuff uh, in places where the, 
you know, Saharan sand blows in, you get sandy bottoms. Um, but in the middle of the ocean, there's just nothing raining down. So it creates this environment where the only thing floating around is all these metals. And they sort of, uh, you know, aggregate into these, you know, volleyball size uh, balls of metal that are, you know, sitting right at the surface of the sea floor. They're called manganese nodules. They're made out of, uh, you know, their main component is manganese, uh, but they contain copper, cobalt, iron, nickel, trace metals, and some lithium. Um, and there's four main regions for them around the world. And, you know, each, each region has a different composition based on where they are. And they all happen to be within the, the range of OTEC. And, you know, these things have been known since the 60s, 70s. Uh, UH helped find them. Uh, and a lot of the research being done on them launches uh, from Hawaii since the largest area, the Clarion-Clipperton fracture zone, is about uh, 1,000 kilometers southeast of us. And they just contain these metals, you know, that we need. Uh, cobalt is uh, one that's particularly in in need of, um, and so there's this potential to, you know, mine these um, manganese nodules to support, uh, you know, battery and PV use as well. Um, but the problem has always been, again, capital expense, and you know they essentially you're you're sending a Hoover vacuum. Uh, tethered Hoover vacuum down to 4,500 meters uh, depth, and you're just sucking these manganese nodules up. Uh, and this requires a lot of energy in the middle of the ocean. And so previously, you had to have um, fossil fuels, right? You had to have a, a giant power plant on board to support the, uh, you know, the equipment. Um, and we think potentially OTEC could Survive, you know, provide an extra uh, an energy source for this, uh, dropping the the cost of retrieving them. So it sounds like there's an international organization that's that's in charge of these nodules, and the United States disassociated itself from that uh, to a certain degree, from my understanding. And what I'm getting at is who owns the rights to these uh, manganese nodules. So the ISA is the uh, is a division of the UN. Um, it's the International Seabed Authority, and it um, it's been charged with permitting. So there's a number of regions that have been you know defined, and it issues permits for extraction. Uh, each region is split up into two sections: one for um, you know preservation. And the other for uh, you know mining activity, and then in that mining activity, it's further split in half from the permitted country, and then uh, the other half, so a quarter. A quarter is is for the you know the permitted country, and the other quarter uh, is for is reserved for developing nations. So you know where once you know minerals you know on land kind of just fall under whoever, uh, you know, happens to control that area at the time, these are in international water. So there's the opportunity to give, you know, mining rights to countries that have no mining, uh, you know, 
that don't have, uh, you know, deposits or so there's this potential to, you know, share that, share that wealth a little bit. And so they've, they've split up the Clarion Clipperton zone. Uh, I forget how many countries now, and they're actually having to, uh, the first country put in a permit, uh, an application to start commit to commence mining activities uh, last year in September, which gives the ISA a two-year time period to issue regulation uh, and, you know, guidelines for extraction. So the, you know, the, the clock is kind of ticking. Any idea what the environmental implications are for the removal? Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, they're awful. Um, just like extraction of any minerals anywhere, right? It's, uh, you know, there's a benthic community down there that's pretty unique. You know, you're 4,500 meters down. There's no light. Uh, so you have this unique benthic community. You know, they live on the seafloor. It's not, it's not uh, the density of, you know, the population density is rather low, but the diversity is extremely high. You know, these are extremophiles, right? They live on essentially no food. And, you know, a lot of them are drifter, um, you know, filter feeders. And so when you pull them up, you have this Hoover vacuum, right? Creates a big dust cloud that essentially anything in that dust cloud, uh, anything in, the, in its way is virtually guaranteed to, to die. Um, there have been studies in the past and even 45, 45 years later, things don't return to where uh, they once were. You know, and so, you know, physical oceanographers are really, really going to be key here, you know, understanding how that dust plume moves, how it settles, uh, making sure that the regions that are protected, um, you know, maintain that diversity. And then you have to return. There's a return flow, obviously. Uh, You know, you, you bring the metals up, but you're also bringing up sediment. You have to return that. So there's a secondary plume uh, and then dissipation of that as well as a problem. And then, yeah, so there's a number of environmental issues. And I guess the question is, what's the alternative? You know, do we continue cobalt extraction in uh, the Congo? Who who benefits from the Congo, uh, you know, cobalt mining? Right. Uh, is it Boko Haram that's in the Congo or is it... Uh, Al-Shabaab, I forget, you know, there's child labor involved, uh, you know, it's an unequitable distribution of the, you know, the world's mineral resources. And so like all mining activities, we're going to have to make that decision. And I mean, I, I think it's an inevitability that we're going to go get them anyway. Yeah. I I think it's, it's inevitable because we're going to have to. I mean, there's more of these minerals available at the bottom of the seafloor than there are on land. Right. That was my immediate thought is if these were mined, uh, a lot of them are the same minerals, uh, metals used in, as you said, PV. And so if the United States did that, for example, you know, our reliance on China and Russia for the same materials uh, would lessen. Yep. Arguably pointing us more towards energy independence. But like you said, there's always... Uh, needs to be compared and not taken in isolation. So just two more questions for you, Nathaniel, if that's all right. Sure. You are a Democrat. You've supported Bernie Sanders. 
there's no denying your commitment uh, to the environment and fighting climate change. So I was hoping if you could summarize your progressive case for Bitcoin. I don't see any other way uh, to fight climate change that doesn't involve Bitcoin. There's just no way to make this transition. Uh, we haven't done it fast enough already. You know, the government has had so many years uh, and has done nothing. Uh, and, you know, now we need to do it faster than ever. And there's a, you know, I hate to say it, I think mobilizing the private market at this point with some incentive mechanism is really the only way to do it. Again, the freedom to move is progressive. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is apolitical. We ascribe our own belief structures onto it. And so, you know, in the early days, there was a lot of libertarians, uh, you know, came at it for the monetary policy. But, you know, I, I looked at the programming side and what I saw was essentially, you know, uh, communism, <laughs> um, you know, the open source software. There, there's no one getting paid for it. You know, each person to their own. You know, everybody contributes to this shared project altruistically, you know, whereas the monetary policy might be, you know, more libertarian focused, the development of it is rather uh, progressive. So somehow Satoshi Nakamoto managed to combine these two diametrically opposed ideologies into a single, single project. And, you know, again, redistribution of wealth that's right out of Occupy Wall Street. I wish Elizabeth Warren could see the, you know, the mass redistribution event. You know, it's the first asset in human history where corporations and the powerful didn't have access to it first. Uh, every other every other asset, it's been, you know, big money interest had access to it before everybody. This is the first one where, you know, those on rails for the, you know, corporations, uh, the powerful just didn't exist until. 2020. And I'm not against uh, CBDCs either. Uh, I think they're, you know, it provides this balance. Uh, you know, I'm not anti, you know, fiat. I see the benefit in the ability to print money. You can solve, you know, one of the questions I've always had is if you have the ability to print unlimited amounts of money, why are children still starving? Why are, you know, why are schools underfunded? Why are hospitals underfunded? Why don't we have, you know, universal health care? Um, but we have unlimited war, right? Uh, I see Bitcoin as this sort of counterbalance, this check and balance against the unproductive use of that ability to, you know, print money. If the government starts getting out of hand and funds, you know, unproductive uses, now you have this, uh, you know, counterbalance. And, you know, checks and balances are the cornerstone of democracy. And I think, you know, Bitcoin can provide that for a lot of developing nations and the developed world as well. Perfect. My last question for you, Nathaniel, is what gives you hope? Yeah, it's a tough one, man. I mean, Bernie was a big, was a big hope. Then after watching, you know, we won in 2016, we won 70% of the state vote uh, and then lost because of uh, superdelegates. So, yeah, that's. I mean, Bitcoin gives me hope for a better world, but honestly, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of hurt. You know, a lot of these regions uh, you're going to have 
be uninhabitable. I mean, you're, you're seeing it now, uh, massive droughts all over the world, massive fires, you know, you're in Southeast Asia, the, the Mekong, uh, is being diverted for, you know, China's usage, but downstream of China, uh, you have you know, major drought. It's been three years now, on uh, you know, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, unable to produce, uh, nearly enough food. Uh, so you're, there's this potential, you know, mass migration that's going to happen. And with any mass migration, you're going to get lots of suffering. Um, and so, you know, with OTEC, there's this potential for unlimited amounts of energy. And with an unlimited amount of energy, you can solve unlimited problems. So Bitcoin. Perfect. Thank you. This is extremely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Please tell the listeners where they can find you and your work. Sure. You can find me at um, on Twitter at BlockchainHI1. Um, yeah, that's the best place to find me. Fantastic. Nathaniel, thank you so much. Aloha. Hey, don't forget to please leave a review of the podcast. It'll take you two seconds to hit that five-star button. I really appreciate it.